depleted uranium weapons. The danger comes not just from their immediate use in projectiles that blast through metal, especially tanks, but the ongoing negative impact on health and life caused by the radioactivity they release, a release that results and lingers for years, decades. These radioactive particles do not stay in one place. They migrate through water, land, food, and especially air, going wherever the wind blows. In Ukraine, an explosion of a stored depot at Kamelnetsky in the western part of that country on May 14, 2023, released a huge cloud of radioactive material from the depleted uranium weapons that were stored on site. The resulting plume of radiation drifted over Ukraine, Poland, and Germany before reaching the site of the origin of the weapons, the UK. And while it was easy for British authorities to deny that there was any problem, and certainly nothing that was connected to Ukraine, it takes a genuine expert to do the research, consider the data, crunch the numbers, and come up with a definitive analysis about the radiation spikes in readings at Aldermaston, only 45 miles away from London. And he tells you, I got the data, and what it showed was that all of the filters, both the ones at Aldermaston and the ones 20 miles away from Aldermaston, all went up together. A huge, huge increase in uranium, three times increase, highly statistically significant increase in uranium just after the Klemnitsky explosion. So that said to me that it was uranium in that explosion. Okay, So that's something that we know. So we know that there's uranium in that plume. Well, when Dr. Chris Busby comes up with a science-based analysis of the migration of depleted uranium's radioactive particles from Ukraine to the UK and can provide the footnotes to support his findings, you know that no matter where you live, you cannot escape that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we again consider depleted uranium weapons and their impact with Dr. Chris Busby. He is a British scientist primarily studying the health effects of internal ionizing radiation and is a director of Green Audit Limited, a private company and scientific advisor to the low-level radiation campaign. Then, to learn more about depleted uranium, we revisit excerpts from our June 13, 2023 interview with DU scholar and activist Damasio Lopez. We'll also have news about his upcoming book on depleted uranium. And we will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than will appear anywhere on sexual producer and sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein's soon-to-be-released list of 200 associates. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week in Japan, where the big news is a powerful earthquake that rocked that country on January 1st at approximately 4.10 p.m. It registered as a 7 on Japan's Shindo scale, which is equivalent to a magnitude 7.6 quake on the Richter scale. It struck on the west coast near Ishikawa Prefecture's Noto Peninsula and was followed by several strong aftershocks and tsunami warnings. Facing what could be described as flashbacks to the damage that happened 
after the 2011 9.0 earthquake and resulting tsunami that took out the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, causing a meltdown in three reactors and a disaster that still is creating problems, Japanese officials jumped forward to take control of the nuclear narrative. Less than one hour after the earthquake took place, at slightly after 5 p.m., Japan's chief cabinet secretary, Hayashi Yoshimasa, said at a news conference that, quote, no damage had been detected at nuclear power plants after the massive earthquake hit the Sea of Japan coast. That talking point was subsequently picked up in headlines and lead paragraphs of the news stories that followed. However, this earthquake had an epicenter in Ishikawa Prefecture, which put the quake right near the largest concentration of nuclear power plants in Japan. The Shika nuclear station has two units, Ohi has two, and Takahama has four. But even as Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority claimed that there were, quote, no irregularities identified at nuclear power plants, further investigation showed that as a result of the earthquake, Two transformers at Shika used to receive electricity from the outside in Units 1 and 2 broke pipes and leaked oil for insulation and cooling. As of this recording, on Tuesday, January 2nd, the system using these transformers is still not receiving electricity. Units 1 and 2 do have three emergency diesel generators. However, one is out of service because it is being inspected. There is enough diesel fuel available on site to run these generators for seven days. Both of these units were shut down in 2011 after the nuclear accident at Fukushima and have remained shut down since then due to the need to comply with newly created regulatory standards. Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority reported that so far, no radiation increases were detected around nuclear plants in the region hit. Also in the wake of the quake, Water from fuel pools at the top floors of the number 7 and number 2 reactors at the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear plant in Niigata Prefecture spilled over due to the strong earthquakes. The water from these pools contains radioactive materials, and TEPCO is measuring radiation levels. As for the tsunami, the current measured maximum height was 3 meters, stretching from Niigata where the Kashiwazaki Kiriwa nuclear plant is located, to south of Fukui Prefecture, where a large concentration of nuclear power plants are located. NHK reported that the maximum tsunami height recorded could increase as waves are still incoming. The sloshing and spillage of radioactive water from the spent fuel pools at Kashiwazaki Kiriwa is significant because on December 27, Japan's nuclear power regulator lifted an operational ban imposed on the nuclear power plant two years ago, allowing it to work towards gaining local permission to start. This may be delayed. Kashiwazaki Kiriwa is only 94 miles from the coast where the earthquake had its epicenter. And South Korea issued alerts on rising sea levels in parts of the East Sea on Monday following the earthquake. The Korea Meteorological Administration said the tsunami could result in a rise in sea levels off the east coast of South Korea, and tsunami warnings were sent by a text message to residents in six cities and counties by the ocean, urging people near coastal areas to evacuate to higher ground. Our thanks and acknowledgement for help with this story go to Nancy Faust and simplyinfo.org and to Hervé Courtois for his rapid translation of this January 2 NHK article into English. As a footnote to this story, it has been shown that young people's knowledge of and interest in the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami, along with the nuclear accident at Fukushima Daiichi, has been declining year by year which makes sense because even 12-year-olds were not yet born when it happened. However, given this recent quake and the immediate attention paid to nuclear reactors, they just might find their interest in Fukushima increased. Here in the U.S., on Friday, December 22nd, President Joe Biden signed the Fiscal Year 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, setting a year's worth of spending limits and policy for national security programs, including those at the Department of Energy. And for those who care about nuclear matters, the report is grim. There is almost no additional monies being apportioned for cleanup. There's much more money being apportioned for weapons. 
and there are no nuclear energy reforms. Most disappointingly was the exclusion of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act extension, which had bipartisan support in the Senate, but was spiked in the Republican-led House. In Illinois, while that state's nuclear power plant moratorium has technically ended, a new law does not allow for even one watt of nuclear energy to be generated for the public electrical grid. The new legislation keeps the door shut on building traditional nuclear power plants and ends the moratorium only for one specific kind of reactor called a small modular nuclear reactor. Here are the problems. Not only are these small units not designed for the public electric grid, they don't even exist. Not a single small modular nuclear reactor has been built. And the one company that had an approved design, New Scale, canceled their plans to pursue the technology on the very day this bill passed the Illinois Senate. So, in essence, this was political. Canceling out a plan to build new nuclear power plants that doesn't exist and allowing for the building of a technology in nuclear that doesn't exist. I don't know about you, but I'm in need of a mental palate cleanser. Here's Linda Penn-Scunter with this week's Hot Story. After enduring the trying-too-hard-to-be-funny Hollywood A-list scenery chew that was Don't Look Up, it was refreshing to watch a feature film that truly captured our dangerous inertia with much more subtlety and thereby with far greater alarm. Leave the World Behind has received mostly mediocre reviews, but by critics who, I feel, took the whole thing far too literally. For me, the film is a multi-layered and almost entirely metaphorical look at our stubborn insistence on ignoring the threats that are bearing down on us. It is a deep dive into denial. That moment is never better exemplified than early on in the film, when a massive oil tanker charges toward a crowded Long Island shoreline, scattering panicked holidaymakers and coming to rest like a massive beached whale. Unrealistic, chorused the critics, who suggested that the white family whose story we are following would not have gone back to their rented holiday house, tried to rationalise away the dramatic event, and simply carried on as normal. But ignoring the obvious warning signs of that metaphorical beach tanker is exactly what we've been doing for decades. And not just the risks of runaway technology and hackers, which is what Leave the World Behind is ostensibly about. It's what we've done and continue to do in the face of all of our major existential crises, climate change, nuclear war, and the extreme dangers of nuclear power. A young black Gen Z woman in Leave the World Behind, one half of the father and daughter whose house it turns out to be, acts as a kind of angry Greek chorus, it's Greta Thunberg, if you will, pushing back against the denial and futile optimism surrounding her. No, this is really serious, she insists. It's not just a temporary glitch. It's the end of life as we know it. Almost no one listens. There are other reminders in Leave the World Behind about our inherent racism, our sense of entitlement, our wanton destruction of other species in their habitat, our loss of community, our failure to act. All of this, to me, adds up to a far more powerful admonition than the two hours and 25 minutes of stating the obvious that Don't Look Up delivered. Leave the World Behind speaks perfectly to us about nuclear power, even though it gets just a glancing mention from our Greek chorus, who, being Gen Z, refers to Ten Mile Island. She is gently corrected. Three Mile Island was the warning shot. Chernobyl was the tanker on the beach. But we went home and carried on as normal, while the authorities dismissed and downplayed and denied. And then it happened again at Fukushima. Lather, rinse, repeat. As we watch countries eagerly embracing new nuclear power programs and those that already have them expand and extend theirs, we are witnessing that willingness to risk another Chernobyl over and over again. So next time that metaphorical oil tanker hits the shore, don't keep calm and carry on. And the next time a nuclear power plant melts down, and there will be a next time, don't build another one. But wouldn't it be better not to wait for that next time? Wouldn't it be better to just recognize that nuclear power risk is serious and close them all down now? I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Internationally, the COP28 plot 
to triple nuclear power by 2050 has been decried by activists, campaigners, and people with critical thinking skills around the world. The Declaration to Triple Nuclear Energy, backed by the United States, Canada, France, the Czech Republic, and others, was announced as part of the Climate Action Summit taking place in Dubai as part of the two-week UN Climate Talks. While the preening and posturing of the nuclear interest made COP28 look dangerously like Burning Man for environmentalists, campaigners called their actions a dangerous distraction. And the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists broke down the numbers. Here's what they had to say. That 22 countries signed the declaration may seem like a lot of support, but 31 countries plus Taiwan currently produce nuclear energy. Notably missing from the declaration are Russia and the People's Republic of China. Thirteen other countries that have key nuclear programs are also missing from the declaration, so it was hardly a slam dunk from the nuclear power countries. Five of the countries signing the declaration do not have nuclear power. Mongolia, Morocco, Ghana, Moldova, and Poland. The 17 remaining signatories to the Nuclear Energy Declaration represent a little more than half of all countries with nuclear energy, raising the issue of how much support there really is for tripling nuclear energy by 2050. Opposition to this grandstanding gesture by the well-moneyed nuclear interests was expressed by Mayoshi Iyoda, a 350.org campaigner in Japan, who said, There is no space for dangerous nuclear power to accelerate the decarbonization needed to achieve the Paris climate goal. It is simply too costly, too risky, too undemocratic, and too time-consuming. We already have cheaper, safer, democratic, and faster solutions to the climate crisis, and they are renewable energy and energy efficiency. In France, French utility EDF will extend plant outages at up to five of its reactors by an average of 30 days each next year, and again in 2025, related to repairs begun in 2023, but clearly not yet concluded, nor will they be anytime soon. EDF manages all of France's 56 nuclear reactors, but in 2022, 12 reactors were shut down for stress corrosion. In addition, climate change has raised the water temperature in many of the water sources that are supposed to cool nuclear reactors, resulting in a need to diminish their activities or shut them down for a period of time every summer. In Russia, the largest nuclear-powered icebreaker in that country, the Sevmorput, has caught fire on the dock in Murmansk in northern Russia. A smaller nuclear-powered icebreaker, the Sibir, was docked alongside it and had to be pulled away by tugboats. Official statements by Russia's Emergencies Ministry reported that the fire was put out about an hour after the initial report. There were no injuries, they didn't know what caused the fire, and they couldn't tell you how close it was to the ship's reactors. Questions about the R-word, radiation, were not raised because it's Russia. In the Netherlands, it has been revealed that the Dutch Air Force apparently started training for new U.S. B-61-12 guided nuclear bombs in 2021, even before the bomb went into full-scale production and entered the U.S. stockpile in 2022. The training took place at Dutch Air Base at, at Vocal Air Base. The 312th Squadron of the 1st Wing at Vocal Air Base is part of the so-called NATO Nuclear Sharing Arrangement, where the United States equips Dutch F-16 and aircraft of five other NATO countries, Belgium, Germany, Greece, Italy, and Turkey, and trains their pilots to employ U.S. B-61 nuclear bombs in war. During peacetime, the weapons are under the custody of U.S. Air Force units, that are also situated at Volkel. The nuclear weapons upgrade at Volkel is part of a broad nuclear modernization program of U.S. non-strategic nuclear forces in Europe. It includes replacement of aircraft, bombs, base infrastructure, nuclear command and control, readiness level, operational planning, and public visibility. Not exactly a formula for peace. And now... 
Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The nuclear industry has never met an overstated superlative that they didn't love, especially when it comes to their own products. Currently being touted out of Canada is a portable nuclear reactor known as the Evinci. Cute, isn't it? A compact, self-sufficient nuclear reactor that will be operational in Saskatchewan, Canada by 2029. Or so they say. The Saskatchewan Research Council footed the $80 million bill, and they're bragging about the fact that, quote, renowned nuclear energy leader Westinghouse constructed the Evinci. Okay, let's unpack that. Westinghouse is a nuclear industry leader in failures, including the VC Summer 2 and 3 reactors in South Carolina, which were canceled for multiple reasons in 2017 at a loss to ratepayers and the state of nearly $4 billion with a B dollars. They were also behind the cost overruns and delays on the two Vogel units in Georgia, years over schedule and $30 billion in cost, that no reasonable business person would look at and call a success. These published ushy-gushy press release propaganda pieces just ooze with self-congratulatory wording like revolutionary, a custom solution, effortless simplicity. No, that's the brains of the people who are behind it. And of course, since what was previously the industry leader, New Scale, has gone belly up in its attempt to sell its small modular nuclear reactors to the state of Utah, there's the whole passive rebranding campaign. Never once calling these things small modular reactors, let alone small modular nuclear reactors, but instead portable micro-reactors, like you put it in a suitcase and you go. And this ignores the main non-talking point, which is they don't even exist yet. So all of these claims about when it's going to be ready, and what's going to be ready, and how good it's going to be, and how simple to operate, and blah dee blah dee blah is just nuclear industry hot air. And as for this taking place in Saskatchewan, I know some activists up there who have a few other things on their mind and are not shy about bringing it forward. So while the nuclear industry pumps up its prospects to secure their money grab for funds that are put aside for genuine renewables by conning the nuclear ignorant, which is most of society, it's clear to those of us here at Nuclear Hot Seat that this push for portable nuclear reactors micro-reactors, and anything but the new scale labeled small modular reactors, let alone nuclear reactors, you and the people behind you are all this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, the Trinity A-bomb test, Church Rock uranium tailing spill, uranium mining, radioactive waste dumps, Nevada test site, and to that Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and too many more to go into here. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as the dangers of plutonium, which has a deadly radioactive half-life of 24,000 years. Every week, this show reports on stories of how this industry perpetuates itself, despite the known risks, how brave activists around the world are fighting back against it and for genuine renewables, and how any one of us can take action to help stop atomic madness. Here at Nuclear Hot Seat, we get into stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism and, often, sarcasm, providing a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect on mainstream media. Every week, there's fresh information, interviews, an unrelenting perspective, and even, when possible, humor. But in order to keep doing this work, we need your help. This show runs on donations, and we're always in need of support. So how about kicking in $5, the same as you would spend here in the U.S. for a nice cup of coffee and a tip to the barista? Or buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month with a recurring donation of $5? Of course, be it one time or ongoing, your donation can be any amount, and it all counts towards our monthly and annual nut. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, 
which means that your donation is tax deductible. So just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red button. If you have Zelle, you can choose to send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Don't wait. Go to the website and donate right now, knowing that whatever you do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. In November, alarming news surfaced about a plume of radiation over Great Britain that caused a significant spike in radioactivity. But what caused it? UK so-called experts tried to brush it off as some baseless oddity, which is why it took Dr. Christopher Busby to track down what took place. Dr. Busby is a British scientist primarily studying the health effects of internal ionizing radiation. That's the stuff that comes from nuclear bombs and nuclear reactors. He is a director of Green Audit Limited, a private company, and scientific advisor to the low-level radiation campaign. He is well known for his testimony in support of UK nuclear workers who suffered from radiation exposure and were seeking compensation from their government. Be it solving a mystery, sleuthing out clues, following a trail of breadcrumbs, or, in this case, the path of a uranium plume, Dr. Busby knows how to track the radioactive clues and accurately deduce exactly where they come from, what they mean, and what they can do. Please note that when Dr. Busby mentions daughters of uranium, he is referring to the sequence of different radioactive products that are creative as uranium decays. We spoke on December 5th, 2023. Dr. Christopher Busby, thanks so much for joining us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm so pleased to be here. There's a lot to talk about. There was a story that came out last May from Ukraine about an explosion that took place at the Kamonetsky Depot. It was believed to be containing depleted uranium weapons that had been shipped from the UK. What kind of tracking did you do of any radiation releases from this explosion? This happened on May 13th of 2023. What tracking did you do and what did you find? Well, at the beginning, when it first happened, all I did was I looked at the wind directions and and it seemed to me that the wind took the material across Poland because the wind was southeast at the time and it was blowing northwest. So I wasn't doing any, I didn't do any more than that. And I said that it seemed to me like it could be a uranium explosion, that I didn't think it was a nuclear explosion. I mean, it was a very large explosion. There are lots of videos of it on the internet. And I was asked by the Russian Sputnik people to comment on it because I'm generally conceded to be some sort of expert on uranium weapons and all that stuff, quite rightly, I have to say. Anyway, so at that point, I thought, well, first of all, it's not a nuclear explosion. It looks like a uranium explosion. And if it is, there's quite a lot of it and it's blown across Poland. So that was as far as I went with it then because they really wanted to know what the health effects would be. In fact, the Russians also said it was an explosion. And at the time, we also noticed that there were increases in gamma radiation in a number of detectors on the border with with Ukraine and going across Poland. So we looked at some of the detector stuff and we, we said, yes, okay, that seems reasonable. Because People were saying that uranium is not radioactive. It doesn't give a gamma signal. There were a lot of pundits, you know, and self-styled experts and people like that on the internet saying that it couldn't be uranium because the increase was gamma radiation. But in fact, there is gamma radiation from the daughters of uranium-238. So if you have depleted uranium, when it decays, it decays to thorium-234 and protoactinium-234M, which are very weak gamma emitters. But even though they're weak gamma emitters, if there's an awful lot of them there, you'll get a signal. And this is very important because later on, I was able to, and this was quite a lot later on, quite recently, in fact, I was able to backtrack and see what the source term was. That is how much uranium was involved doing all sorts of mathematical stuff. Okay, so I left it at that. And then later on, I thought, well, the only people that I know that measure uranium in Europe was the Atomic Weapons Establishment in Aldermaston in Berkshire. But the Atomic Weapons Establishment, AWE, Aldermaston, is about 50 miles west of London. And it used to be the great place that everyone marched to. They, all the anti-nuclear people used to march to Aldermaston, you know, Bertrand Russell and all that. This was way back in the 60s. So this is Aldermaston. And they were forced to put filters around the site 
to measure plutonium and to measure uranium. And they also had to put filters far away from the site to also measure the same thing so that they could say, well, it wasn't us, Gov, if they all went up together. You see, if, if the concentrations of uranium in the filters 20 miles away all went up, as well as the ones that went up at Aldermaston, then clearly it's not Aldermaston that's releasing the uranium and the plutonium. You understand that was that there were two rings of filters around the plant, and they were forced to do that by law after a public inquiry. So they've had to do that since then. And I can get that information from them. Usually they just give it to me, but sometimes you have to ask for it under a freedom of information request. And so I did. I got the data, and what it showed was that all of the filters, both the ones at Aldermaston and the ones 20 miles away from Aldermaston, all went up together. Huge, huge increase in uranium, three times increase, highly statistically significant increase in uranium just after the Klemnitsky explosion. So that said to me that it was uranium in that explosion, okay? So that's something that we know. If we go to sort of Donald Rumsfeld and say, you know, what we know, what we don't know, and what we don't know, we don't know, and so on. So we know that there's uranium in that plume. So then the question is, how much uranium? So what I did was I used the what's called the NOAA computer system, which you can find on the internet. It's a, it's a, a very, very useful, huge computer system that tracks plumes using archived weather data. And you just put in the site that you're interested in, latitude and longitude, and it'll tell you where the wind was blowing, you know, and where the plume went over seven days or four days or, or however many days you want it to. And it's pretty accurate. I've used it a lot in court cases. So I, I put in the coordinates, you know, latitude and longitude of Klemnitsky on the 13th of May at four o'clock in the morning local time. That's three o'clock in the morning GMT. And it showed me that the material went where I thought it went, in fact. So it went across Poland, but then it turned right. It went north-westerly across Poland. And then when it got right about Warsaw, around about there, it suddenly turned north-easterly and went up into the Baltics, went up into, into southeast Belarus and the Baltics. And in fact, very small amounts of it went right up into Russia, around about St. Petersburg, and then Finland too. So that's the plume track. Now, the next thing I did, which was a bit of cunning science, was I I used the... Now, the US Environmental Protection Agency have a very valuable set of calculations that enable you to relate increases in gamma radiation anywhere to the amount of material in a cloud around the point of detection. So I used that system. And that enabled me to convert the increased dose rate at the two Polish detectors closest to Klemnitsky, 400 kilometers away, just on the border, to calculate back to the source term. In order to calculate, back, I, so what the filter levels told me was how much material was in the plume. It was about 6,000 becquerels per cubic meter for anybody who's interested in the technical. And how significant is that amount? That's very large. That's a serious amount of uranium, that is. And these are uranium particles. You're talking about 300 milligrams per cubic meter. So in terms of a dust storm in America, and I, I looked at work that's been done on that, that would reduce the visibility to about 200 meters as it went across. So it would obviously be something that people noticed. Okay, so then you calculate back using what's called a Gaussian plume model, which I can do. I mean, it's just a bit of mathematics. And you find out that the quantity of material involved, the quantity of uranium involved in the explosion was 50 tons. That's quite a lot of uranium. Do we know for certain what the source was of that uranium? Was it DU no, weapons? We, we don't know what weapons were involved, but 50 tons. I mean, we know that, I mean, I, I know a bit about uranium weapons that they tell you about. I mean, there, there are lots of uranium weapons that they don't tell you about. But if we take the ones that we know about that are supposed to have been sent there by the British government or by the United States or whoever. We're talking about the shells that they put into, into guns and into tanks. And they have a rod of uranium in the middle. And the rod weighs between three and five kilograms. So if you say conservatively it weighs five kilograms and you've got 50 tons, you know, then you've got 10,000 of these shells. Well, I don't know whether that's a lot or not. 10,000 shells, it seems like an awful lot to me, but but I talk to people and they say, oh, well, you know, sure, I mean, they're firing 5,000 a day and blah, blah. Anyway, really, it's not my 
I'm not that interested in these horrifying weapons. You know, I'm more interested in health effects and so forth. And so I was asked about the health effects, you know, originally by the Russians, because, of course, that's what we're interested in. We're, in, we're interested in what this is going to do to people. And so in this case, what it's going to do to people in Western Ukraine, where the concentrations were highest between Klemnitsky and the border, that's 400 kilometers. And then as it went into Poland. Now, the concentration of that material relative to the land area is not a lot. It's a bit less, maybe a half or a third of the amount of the concentration of uranium relative to the land area of Iraq. So it seems to me that it's going to produce similar effects. It's going to produce all the effects that we found in Iraq when we studied Fallujah and other people have studied cancers and congenital malformations down in Basra and on the border there where, where I went, in fact, and, and measured it and walked into the hospital. So there's going to be, if all this is true, and I think it is true, I can't see what else can be, then we're talking about a lot of cancer and genetic damage and... Uh, congenital malformations, birth defects, all that stuff that happens to people who've been contaminated by these radioactive particles of uranium. And that includes the plume reaching the United Kingdom and raising the amount of, is it background radiation? Is it just uranium by three? No, no, it's it? just it's uranium. You see, the, the problem is that they set up all these gamma detectors all over Europe after Chernobyl. And the idea was that they didn't want people to finding out about an explosion at a nuclear plant, you know, too late. But that only measures gamma radiation. And the problem with uranium is it's basically an alpha emitter. And the amount of gamma radiation given off from it is very, very low. Now, the amount of material that turned up in the UK was really, really low. I mean, we could show that it was there because, of course, they have methods for measuring tiny amounts. And we could see it all go up. But in terms of the amount that we're talking about in the plume as it crossed the Polish border, we're talking about probably one hundred thousandth of, of that amount, you know, certainly less than 0.1% of it got to England. The importance of England is that it showed that the plume contained, that, you know, that something happened that produced uranium. Is this an ongoing problem? Was it the plume was there and it passed and it deposited? It gets rained out, you know, that once this stuff's in the air, these particles actually form condensation centers for rain. And that's what happened at Hiroshima, incidentally, exactly the same thing. That, and I, I wrote a paper about that, or a couple of papers about that in the last five years, which have to do with the black rain that fell after Hiroshima. And that's what happened. Of course, the, the, the casing of the bomb, both of the bombs had uranium casing in order to act as tampers and to keep all the neutrons in the middle so they went bang. So they had big uranium casings, and these uranium casings, when the bang happened, and all the, you know all this stuff was turned into a plasma, turned into ions, then when they condensed back to form uranium particles, the water condenses on them, and they fell as black rain. And it was, in fact, the black rain that caused the cancer effects at Hiroshima and not the gamma radiation. And that's been accepted by the Japanese government now. So they're giving compensation to people who had cancer who were there in Hiroshima, even though they never got any gamma radiation from the flash at all. They were five, six, seven kilometers away, or they came in later, and but they still got contaminated by the dust. And that's what will happen here. So the dust will be on the ground, but eventually it'll get washed into the soil and, and so forth, you know. So it's basically the people who were exposed at the time that the plume came across. If you were living in the UK now, would you be taking any particular precautionary measures? And if so, what might that be? Or are precautionary measures even possible at this point? No, there's nothing you can do now. And and basically, there wasn't anything you could do then either, because these particles go through through very fine filters. Um, I mean, if we're talking about the filters at Aldermaston, they measured an increase in the uranium content from particles, but they wouldn't have got all the particles because a lot of these particles are, are so small that they just basically travel through most filters. I suppose if you were totally paranoid and insane, you could buy some fantastically powerful or, or efficient microfilter and walk about with a gas mask. But really, there's not much you can do, frankly. You just have to sort of, basically, you have to get angry. That's what you have to do. You have to get angry and, and make sure that this stuff doesn't ha that this doesn't happen. There's so much of this stuff around, you know, and the problem is the risk model 
permits them to do these things because the radiation risk model that they use basically says that this stuff is perfectly safe. And that's why they gave it to Zelensky, you know. And when everybody started moaning, including the Russians, including Putin, he said, look, you know, this stuff is dangerous. If you use it, it will contaminate the ground. It will give people cancer and so on. They said, no, no, no problem at all. We've had the Royal Society on this and we've had the National Radio. And, you know, if you look at the risk model, there's no way in which it can harm anybody. And they bring in the WHO and the IAEA and all these dishonest scientists or idiots to say that it's perfectly safe. It's not safe. Okay, It's not safe. I mean, there's been evidence that it's not safe now for 20 years. Are you doing any follow-up on this story or this is one that you leave behind as you move on to the next? No, I won't leave it behind. I mean, I certainly continue that. I'm, I'm a kind of like a point focus for all the people who are concerned about these things. And if anybody find something new, they usually contact me and say, what do you think about that? And I say, oh, well, you know, whatever I think about it. I don't always find that that they're right, or I don't always go along with what they say. But generally, if something happens, people will get in touch with me and tell me. And then if it's a serious item, I'll write something and stick it up on the internet or make a video or whatever, you know. I'll keep an eye on all of this stuff. To me, the distribution of uranium particles is one of the most dangerous aspects of nuclear, of nuclear power, of nuclear weapons. Of, of This stuff comes out of the stacks of nuclear power stations, these uranium particles, and people inhale them. They get through the lung into the lymphatic system, or they then get coughed up and they go into the colon, and they have horrifying consequences, you know. And, and one of the things I've been doing for, since about 2000 is drawing attention to the way in which uranium cannot be um, modelled in the way that they model it. It just cannot be. I mean, it has also, it binds to DNA, for instance. It intercepts gamma radiation and produces photoelectrons. There are all sorts of reasons why it's unbelievably dangerous. So that's, if you like, my job is to continue to bang that drum. Where can people find information and follow your work? Well, basically, they have to type in Dr. Chris Busby to Google, and they'll find it. They'll find it. And I have a, a website called Green Audit, which some of my stuff I put up on there. But to, to be honest, I work so fast and sort of dirtily, I suppose you would say. You know, I'm not one of these people who have to get everything absolutely perfect as they go along. You know, I, I, I'm a sort of swift and sort of rather crude worker. I'm a kind of chainsaw scientist, if you can imagine such a thing. But I mean, mostly I get it right. You know, I mean, I can't be bothered to sit there and nitpick it into, you know, into the point where like everything is absolutely perfectly understood and so forth. Because frankly, I mean, even if you do that, it's never really perfectly understood. You know, there, there are all sorts of unknowns and all sorts of things that you learn later and then you have to refine it and so on. And my feeling is I should get it out there as quickly as possible in the best way in which I can, because these things are so seriously dangerous. They're so important as sort of public health issues that they need to get out there and other people need to pick them up and shout and scream and jump about. So anyway, you'll find the stuff that I do. I've been putting a lot of it on. Um, there are two very interesting sites that have developed in the last five years. One is called academia.edu. That's one outfit. And the other outfit is called ResearchGate. Okay. Now, you can put your stuff on both of these things. So you'll find me on ResearchGate and you'll find me on Academia.edu. And if there's anything that's interesting or important, what I do is I stick the stuff up there. And the other thing is I've got quite an interesting trick, which I've developed in the last year or two. The point is that academic peer-reviewed journals are more or less taken over by bad guys, you know, so they have their reviewers. And this has been the case for a very, very long time. So if you send a paper to one of these journals about radiation and its effects, they'll send it to a reviewer and the reviewer will spike it. This has happened increasingly. But I've managed to get around this in the last five years through various devious means. But the most interesting way forward now is what they call preprint. There are a number of preprint.com type sort of websites, preprints. So what you do, and this is what Academia did, is you can write a paper for a journal. So you can say a really good journal. You can have a journal like Nature or Lancet or BMJ or something like British Medical Journal or whatever. There are lots of posh journals. And you can write a paper for them. You can then put the first copy of it, the draft. You can stick the draft up on, on academia.edu. Now, everybody goes there. They all go there. And if you've got a following, which I have, you stick this stuff up there and everybody's onto it immediately. And then they spread it around the place and other people come and so on. So the whole area of discourse 
relating to, if you like to call it the truth, is changing rapidly on the internet. It's really, really changing quickly. And so you get an awful lot of nonsense. But my feeling is that if it sounds good and if it looks good, it probably is good. And people will pick it up. And in this case, it's it's a very important issue. You know, it's not something that you can sit there and wait like six months while some journal decides to spike it or not. This is something that people need to know about so that we don't have any more of it. I mean, for my position, I think they should stop the Ukraine and Ukraine war on the basis of this. You know, the British have sent this stuff to Ukraine and the Russians have popped a bomb onto it and blown it up and it's blown all the way back over to Britain. You know, it's a sort of return to sender. Dr. Busby, it's always eye-opening and mind-boggling to talk with you because you stretch our ability to understand exactly what's going on on the radiation front, on how this stuff actually operates and what it's actually doing to us. We look forward to the next time we're going to speak for Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. It's always it's always a delight to get to a situation where you're able to communicate important things like this with, with a reasonably large audience. And I think you do, Libby, have quite a reasonably large audience of anti-nuclear people. One can only hope. Dr. Chris Busby. His website is greenaudit.org, and you can contact him by email at admin at greenaudit.org. Of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 654. To fill in the picture of depleted uranium weapons, what they do and what they have done to people in Iraq and even New Mexico, we revisit an interview with Damasio Lopez. Damasio is both a scholar and activist on DU, who was born and still lives in Socorro, New Mexico, less than 30 miles from where DU weapons were developed and first tested. Damasio has spoken in more than 30 countries, at more than 100 colleges and universities, and the United Nations, and he helped draft bans on DU weapons for Belgium and Costa Rica, bans which still stand. In this interview, he spoke of a 24-page document on DU that he has created. He's now expanded it into a completed book entitled Memoirs of a Gadfly, One Man's Fight Against Depleted Uranium Munitions. We'll give you more information on that book and how it will become available after these excerpts from our interview, which appeared initially on Nuclear Hot Seat number 625 from June 13, 2023. I've been to 30 countries. I've given presentations uh, over a couple hundred in different places and different states and different countries. And I've done my best to get out as far as I can, and I'm not done yet. And I won't be finished, I will not be finished, until there is a total ban on depleted uranium weapons passed at the United Nations by those five permanent members of the Security Council that are the biggest DU users and sellers in the world. We have had resolutions taken to the United Nations through ICBUW, uh, International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, which I helped organize. I'm one of the founders. And they submitted presentations to the Security Council to ban these weapons. They wanted to have hearings. The Security Council members If one of them decides they don't want to hear a resolution, they won't. And that's what's happened about three or four times. And so right now, my aim is to get as many people as possible across the globe to contact those five permanent members of the Security Council and tell them to do their job and ban these weapons like they should. And that's why they are on the Security Council. They are the United States, Great Britain, France... Russia and China. And we have made several efforts and made resolutions that have come from the Human Rights Subcommission. I worked with them at the UN headquarters in Europe. And every time they would get a resolution to the Security Council, they they would stop it. And it only takes one member of the Security Council to not accept a resolution. So these guys are pretty tough, and they're the biggest sellers of weapons, as I said before, and users. So they have a lot at stake. These are the people that are holding this thing back because of their desire to make a lot of money, win wars, and kill people. Here, 
He draws parallels between the dangers to Ukraine by citing what he saw and experienced in Iraq and the impact of DU weapons on the people there. We got a war going on. There's people being killed in Ukraine. And we don't know where all this is going to go, but depleted uranium may be a big issue in this thing. Well, depleted uranium is a big issue. And I have a 24-page document that if I could get it in the hands of President Zelensky, I think he might take a little different view of using depleted uranium in his country and contaminating it like Iraq was contaminated. The people in the country have become totally disenchanted with their country. They know their country is contaminated. They have children being born with diseases and different types of deformities that are so bad. I went there to Iraq. I mean, immediately when I found out what was going on there, I, I went there and, and I went to the children's hospitals and the different hospitals and I saw the most horrible things I'd ever seen in my life. Even a horror movie wasn't this bad. I mean, these kids look just horrible. I mean, when you, you, you think about, say, a cyclop, you know, somebody with an with a eyeball in the middle of his head, that's really nice for movies, but there's no such thing in reality. There is such things in reality. All you have to do is go to Baghdad and go to some of the children's hospitals there, and you can probably, even today, you can probably find them there. That was a, one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had in my life. It brought me to tears thinking about my hometown and the people in my town producing some of these weapons and testing them there. And I'm, I was a part of it just by being there. I'm an American, and we did this to these people. It was very, it was, it was hard for me. Damasio then goes on to speak of experiences he had in Iraq doing testing as part of a delegation led by U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. General Ramsey Clark asked me to go to Baghdad with him to Iraq. And he invited me. He knew I had been doing surveys. I survey for depleted uranium with radiation instruments. And so he asked me if I could go there with him. And I said, sure. He had a big delegation that went with him. It was about 80 people. We ended up going to the Highway of Death, doing some uh, testing there. It was levels of radiation were extremely high, a lot higher than one would expect in finding depleted uranium. This was more like man-made radiation. I went there with a radiation detector, took it to the Department of Energy, which, since I was part of their Citizens Advisory Board, and I told them I wanted to check it out and make sure that uh, this detector would be able to detect depleted uranium. And I found the one that did. I wanted to know from them exactly how I did the survey, and they showed me and the whole deal, you know. And, and so when I went to Iraq, I was expecting to find a projectile put this radiation detector to it, and the maximum I was going to get was 600 counts per minute. That was what was expected. I got 2,400 counts per minute. But officials in Iraq did not want this evidence of DU contamination to leave their country. I tried to get the samples out of Iraq. The country would not let me take the samples out of the Iraq. First of all, Ramsey Clark said I could do that at the beginning. But then they advised him, no, we're not going to let you do this. We, you know, he has to leave it here. But he did. The other guy down in Bosnia, uh, Pekka Haviso, he took his stuff to three or four laboratories and had his samples tested. And every one of them came up with isotopes of high-level uranium from nuclear fuel plants. What leads me to believe this, and it'll find, we'll, we're going to learn this in the future. Right now, a lot of groups that work in this field say, oh, no, they don't use that. It's only this depleted uranium with a lower contact of radiation. And they stick to that no matter what. But, you know, I was out in the field. I'm getting 2,400 counts per minute, and I'm figuring 600 is a maximum. Well, and then this Pekka Havisu works in the United Nations Environmental Program. He's on a team. He was the leader of the team. In fact, he ran for president in Finland last year. He comes out with his article, and, and then I, he had some follow-up stuff, and I contacted him at one point, and I had a little talk with him about what I had found in Iraq. And so far, we're the only two who have actually come forth and said this. And he will continue to say this in as many forms possible. Depleted uranium scholar and activist Damasio Lopez. 
These were excerpts from our interview for Nuclear Hot Seat number 625 from June 13, 2023. It's up on the website. It's easy to find, and you can listen to the whole thing there. It's a rich interview containing important observations about depleted uranium and international politics. Demacio's 24 pages, referred to in the interview, is now a completed book under the title Memoirs of a Gadfly, One Man's Fight Against Depleted Uranium Munitions. The book is now in pre-publication printing in very limited numbers, not yet available to the public. These copies are intended to promote the book to publishers, to get them to pick it up for publication and distribution. If you can help Damasio find a publisher or other resources to get his book out, contact him directly at l.damasio at yahoo.com. You can also ask to be placed on his database to be notified when the book becomes generally available. We'll have that link to Damasio up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 654. Activists, activists, It is with great sadness that we mark the passing of Klee Benali, a Navajo man who advocated on behalf of indigenous people and environmental causes. Benali died December 30th at a Phoenix hospital, and his cause of death was not disclosed. He protested police violence and racial profiling and was among activists who gathered outside Metro Phoenix's NFL stadium in 2014 to denounce the offensive team name previously used by the franchise from Washington, D.C. Benali advocated for the cleanup of abandoned mines where uranium ore was extracted from Navajo Nation over decades to support U.S. nuclear activities during the Cold War. He was also a musician, a guitarist, and played with his sister and brother in the Native American punk rock band Blackfire. In November, Benali released No Spiritual Surrender, Indigenous Anarchy in Defense of the Sacred. He was only 48 years old and will be deeply missed. News regarding the International Uranium Film Festival, which will be touring North America in 2024. The California-based Samuel Lawrence Foundation has generously donated a new award to the film festival, which will be presented to the most outstanding film of the year directed by a promising new talent and is accompanied by a $1,000 cash prize. The festival's executive director, Marcia Gomez de Oliveira, said, The creativity of young filmmakers plays a crucial role in bringing the consequences of nuclear power, from uranium mining to nuclear waste, to the public, ensuring that incidents like Chernobyl or Fukushima and the plight of uranium mining and nuclear weapons victims are not forgotten. The 13th edition of the International Uranium Film Festival will feature screenings in 11 cities, including Asheville, North Carolina, Chicago, Illinois, Las Vegas, Nevada, Irvine, California, Salem, Oregon, Santa Barbara, California, Seattle, Washington, Spokane, Washington, Tucson, Arizona, Vancouver in Canada, and the Navajo Nation capital, Window Rock. We'll have much more on this in the coming weeks. And a terrific article by Kimberly Roberson, founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. It appeared in Truthout and was entitled, U.S. promotion of banned Fukushima seafood contradicts Biden's cancer initiatives. Boy, that goes to the point. We'll have a link up to the full article on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 654. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we would love to get it to you because it guarantees that you will get each episode fresh out of the starting gate as soon as it posts. You can sign up on your favorite podcast channel, or we would really prefer it because it helps with our database and our Google algorithms. If you go to NuclearHotSeat.com, there's a yellow box that pops up. It's really big and you can't avoid it. Put in your first name and email address, and that way every week, you will get one email with a link to the show and a short description of its content. No hunt and peck and having to remember, oops, it's time for the show. You'll have it right in front of you. Now, as for the content of this show, you're invited to participate. 
If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help and we'll appreciate your support. Everything helps, so join in on the fun and help us keep going. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you cite the program, the website, and the name of anyone whose comments you use, including myself. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat and Hardestry Communications, reminding you, depleted uranium makes no distinction between nationalities. There you have it. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.